And let's read from God's word here. So again, from Philippians 1, 27 through uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whenever I come, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the Holy Spirit, in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And then from chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any uh, common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value yourself, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This is God's word. Thank you. You can give that to Dan. So, when... When I moved here last year, or about a year and a half ago, up here to the valley, uh, Jess and I, we, we left behind a good bit of knowledge, which I realize now makes it seem like we got dumber when we came here, but w- what I mean was we, we left behind a lot of what we knew, uh, things that had become second nature to us. We had lived in the same area for most of our lives. Uh, we left our home church. We no longer knew the shortcuts or the back roads. We didn't know where the traffic jams are, which we've now found out Route 191 and Newburgh Road, terrible at rush hour. But we, we lost a lot of that stuff. We didn't know what mechanics to trust. We don't know the school politics here. We don't know all the idiosyncrasies that go along with you know, every different subculture you get into. But among, among the things that, that I miss the most, or I didn't even realize that I probably enjoyed so much, uh, was and what we left behind it, a big piece of our identity. Uh, our, our families lived there. We'd grown up there. We were known. And in some way, that gave us influence that I, I didn't even realize that we had. One interesting part of, of my identity in South Jersey is that my last name is Entwistle, which is here, you're like, that's a bizarre last name, unless you're a fan of The Who, in which case you do know that last name. Um, I guarantee you we're related to John Entwistle somewhere. But anyway, in South Jersey, Entwistle was a fairly well-known and common last name because the family was prolific and there were Entwistles all over the place. Uh, you know, and, and I am Jim Entwistle, and my father was, is Jim, and his father was Jim, and when I had a boy, his name is Jim, and so there's just, it's all wrapped up in this, this identity we have in being Jim Entwistle. And so I, I knew sort of what I belonged to in, in getting that name. I knew that that meant that, uh, you know, I was meant to be a hard worker, 
that, that you know, so many of our family members were Christian. It meant that I was coming into a Christian heritage, and it meant servant. It meant probably middle class uh, and so forth. And as an entwistle, I wanted to live worthy of that name. I knew the identity that it had, and I wanted to live into that. And I didn't have to earn it. It was mine by birth. But I wanted to live into it and worthy of it. So today, what we're looking at in this passage in Philippians is is ways in which Paul is calling the church at Philippi to live worthy of their calling, to live worthy of the gospel that they have been born into. And we're going to look next week at what it means to be live worthy of, of the gospel based on gratitude. But in, let's look at context, right, and just catch everybody up so we're all on the same page. We remember that Paul's writing uh, as a friend, as a co-laborer in the gospel. Uh, he has been encouraging this church that even though he is suffering in the face of opposition, that the gospel is advancing and he's celebrating this with them. He's writing to encourage them about the opposition that they're going through. He's writing to them. They live in a Roman colony in, in uh, Macedonia, and, and they have... They're surrounded by images of Rome and of Caesar. And he's writing them also to talk about a disagreement that's happened within their church. If you look in chapter 4, verse 2, he actually names names of people who are having a bit of a disagreement. There's these two women. And he says, I plead with Iodia and Sintiq. And he says, I plead with them that they would agree in the Lord. And he says, and I plead with the rest of you to come around them and encourage them to agree. So he's writing with these different things in mind, opposition, this disagreement that's in the church. He's encouraging them about what's happening in his situation in Rome and what can happen in their situation. So in light of the opposition that they're facing and that he is facing, in light of their purpose of gospel advancement, like we talked about last week, and in light of the disagreement that they have among them, Paul tells the Philippian church to live worthy of the gospel and to do so by living in humility to be humble Christ followers. Now, think about somebody who's humble, right? They're, typically, they're enjoyable to be with, right? They don't, they don't need to have the limelight all the time. They're able to share things with you, their things or, or glory in some way. Or think about somebody who is prideful. They don't want to share their stuff. They don't want to share fame. They don't want to share authority or power. And they're pretty much miserable to be with after not too long an amount of time. Right, And I'm sure that most of us will probably plot ourselves somewhere in the middle. Like, mostly humble, sometimes proud, we're doing okay, right? But Paul is calling the church here to sort of a, a next-level humility. Something greater than probably any of us are capable of doing on our own. But if you read in the rest of the New Testament, you'll see from John, you'll see from Peter, you see over and over again from Paul that he's calling them, they're calling us to this next-level Humility, something unlike we've seen on the earth outside of Jesus. So we're going to talk today about what does it mean to be humble? How do we actually do that? How do we go about that? And I need to say this right from the outset. This is a message for you. This is a message for me. This is not a message on humility for your spouse. This is not a message on humility for your boss for your family member, for somebody in your relationship with, for your kids. Oh, yeah, they really need to hear this. Maybe they do. So do you. So do I. This is what Paul is calling us to. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now and that we would learn something about humility today. Father, we come here today to glorify you, to praise you, and we come here to learn 
about you and your love for us. And today, specifically, we're looking at this passage asking that you would show us what it means to be humble. And by your spirit, I ask that you would teach us how to be humble. That we would take responsibility in light of the gospel for our own lives and choose into this next level humility. Speak to us now from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, Cleveland, thanks for reading that passage. We see three things that are happening in this passage. And honestly, if you look at this passage in the Greek, it's like three big run-on sentences. There's like no commas, no breaks. It's just Paul is rambling because he's so amped up, and he's dictating this letter to somebody. So the first section we see is, is he says, I want you to live worthy of the gospel by being united, by being one in one mind, in one person, in one spirit. So live worthy to gospel, and then you stay united by being humble, by having humility. And then finally, he wraps up in that section in 2, 1 to 11 by saying, be like Jesus. His attitude that he had should be what we adopt for ourselves in our relationships. So look with me again at, at chapter 1, 27 to 30. Paul says this, whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner uh, worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, this first section, we would say Paul, Paul is calling the church in Philippi to, be, to live worthy of the gospel. Now, I see a few different things happening here, but let's remember context. Paul is writing to people living in the Roman Empire. Right? They're surrounded by statues of Caesar. They're surrounded by the soldiers who were put there to colonize this place. Veterans of, of war who were so proud of the Roman citizenship. And, and these people are Roman citizens. They're living under the law of Rome, but also in the freedom that came along with that. And, and they're surrounded by it and reminded of it on a regular basis. So he's writing this church, though, to say, even though you're in this and it's, it's good to be a citizen, it's also a form of opposition against the kingdom of Jesus that you're a part of. And they're coming against the church and they're coming against Christ. And it's into that context that Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. When you look at that word, conduct yourselves, I was fascinated by this. When you look at that word, it's based on the Greek word actually for citizenship. So when he's saying conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of, what he's saying is live like citizens of the gospel, which is a theme that he talks about regularly. We see him come to it in the end of the book of Philippians as well, where he says, you're not just citizens of earth, you're citizens of another kingdom altogether. So he's starting that theme right here from the beginning, saying conduct yourselves as citizens of the gospel. He's reminding them that this isn't their home, that their citizenship is in heaven or in the kingdom of Jesus. So Paul is starting to establish this argument already for them, that they're called to live in a different city, a different kingdom, and to live worthy of that citizenship. So now think with me about citizenship. Most of us in here were born somewhere, right, where we inherited citizenship through birth whether it was America or somewhere else, we have this citizenship that was granted to us by 
birth. It was something that we were born into. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we buy. It's not something that we learn our way into. It's something that was given to us by believing in Jesus and being new creations, born into that citizenship. Do you see it? So he's reminding them, you've been born into this thing, now live worthy of it. And talking to myself, talking to you, we do not have to live worthy of it so we can earn it. Christ has already earned it for us. And now we get to live in a new way. We don't have to, we get to. I don't know if that's good grammar or not, but remember it. We don't have to do it, but we get to live as citizens in this new kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus earned for us. So, what does it look like then? What does it look like then to live as citizens of the gospel, living in this new kingdom, in the face of, they were living in the face of Roman opposition, we live in the face of the American empire, who's calling us to do all sorts of things for that empire, and he's saying, no, you live as part of a different kingdom. What does it look like to live worthy of that? Well, Paul goes on to say it looks like standing together in one spirit, being united in mind, and working out the ethic of the gospel as that one mind, believing the gospel together, and even suffering together united under the banner of the gospel and in the face of opposition. Now, here's what's fascinating to me. I don't know if you caught it in the two times that, that Cleveland read it or that I read it. Do you see what Paul says in verse 28? He says that when you are united in the face of opposition and you are humble and loving one another and we pull together as a church and we have one mind and one purpose in advancing the gospel, he says... It is a sign to the opposition that they will be destroyed and that you will be saved. That is a bizarre thing, but it's actually pretty fascinating if you think about it. He's saying, look, in the face of this opposition, which you're going to face regularly, don't get loud. Don't get proud. You don't need to fight in that way. You instead love one another in the church, and somehow that will show them. Can you imagine if we lived like that? Think about how much time that, maybe maybe not you, but think how much time we see Christians just ranting and raving about the opposition that they face. Things aren't going the way they want, the way that they like. People are against us. The government's against us. Oh, the liberals. Oh, the conservatives. On and on, right? It's all over the place. And yet Paul's saying, that's not how we fight. You know how we fight? By loving each other well. That we'll show the opposition what's up, right? Can you imagine if we lived like that, what the valley would look like, what our schools would look like, what our culture would look like in the face of opposition if instead of ranting and raving against that, we loved one another well? That is what he is calling us to, to contend for the gospel together, not contend against culture, against the country, against the empire. Contend for the gospel by loving one another. That will change a culture. So are we living like that? I don't know. You have to answer that question for yourselves. But are we living like that? Are you living like that? Am I living like that? Are we prioritizing being together? Are we living worthy of the gospel as citizens of a different kingdom? But Paul goes on from there. He doesn't just leave them with that. He starts to give them instructions on how to do that, what it looks like to start loving one another. And he says it comes through humility. It's the only way we can be of one mind. It's the only way we can contend for the gospel together is through humility. 
So look, look at the beginning of chapter 2. Paul says this, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others, others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul has these four if statements. If this, if this, if this, if this, then live this way. Then make my joy complete by living in this way. He's saying, if you've understood the gospel at all, which you have, which he's already affirmed for them earlier in the letter. He says, if you've gotten this in any way, if you've been connected to the Spirit, if you've been encouraged by Jesus, which you have, then live like this. So there's a switch that has to happen where we say, yes, we have received this. We're going to now go live in this way. Humility is a defining characteristic of the gospel. Right from the very beginning, it's a defining characteristic. So to even begin to believe the gospel, right, we have to come to a place of humility and to see Jesus as Lord and not ourselves, which is how we got into this mess in the first place, right? Adam and Eve, all the way back in the garden, we're God, you're not, now we need the gospel. <laughs> now we need salvation. So we start by coming to a place of humility. It takes a lowering of our pride to really begin to grasp that. And as we do, we are united with Christ, like Paul's talking about, and we find that he is truly Emmanuel, God with us, We're comforted by his love in the midst of suffering and opposition. And we have fellowship with the spirit that he's talking about, all because we start to lower our pride and believe that Jesus is Lord. So Paul is saying, if you've gotten this at all, if you've understood this to any degree, and you have, then you're starting to move into this this world of living in humility towards one another. So do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but live in humility towards others. So do you see what happens there? He's indicating that you've had humility towards God and in God and and come to a place where you've said, okay, you're God, I'm not. He's now saying, okay, turn that now to your brothers and sisters in the Lord and to say, okay, I'm not God, you're not God, we're going to do this together and we're going to pursue the gospel and the advancement of the gospel together. Now, I don't know how many of you in here have children uh, I have kids, or you have been a kid yourself at some point, right? We all have, okay. So w- what I see happening, I, an example of this to me is, is where I've sat my kids down before and I've said, look, you know that I love you. You know that I will give you, God willing, everything that you need for life. So our relationship is good in this way. And I will provide for you, and I will care for you, and I will give you what you need, and I will build you up, and I will love you. Can you please just do it for your brother and sister? Right? You're trying to assure them of their security and their safety and their provision in this way, and you're saying, okay, we have this established. Can you do it this way now? And it's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you have all these things. This is what, you've earned. This is what God has given you in the gospel. You didn't have to earn this. You were born into this now. Turn it and give it to the world around you, particularly to your brothers and sisters in the church. Remember, he's writing to a church that is having a bit of a disagreement. And he's saying, you've got this, now go do this. Not just vertical, but horizontally loving the people around you. So, before we get too much further down the line about that, look at uh, verse 2-4 with me. If you have scriptures here, you can look at it. 
he says this. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look not only, but also. Paul is not calling people to live with no desires. He's not calling them to live with with no interests at all, no drive, no ambition, no imagination. Do you understand? He's still allowing for people to have individuality. He's still saying, yes, you are going to have ideas. You're going to have intuition that calls you to something. You're going to have a calling that God puts specifically on your life. But don't look only to that. Look also to the people around you. He's still allowing for people to have unique interests and callings and wiring and drive, but he's saying that we don't simply serve ourselves 24-7. The advancement of the gospel, the contending for the gospel in light of opposition, the joy of being in Christ and in the gospel community is found in living as citizens that don't only think of themselves, but also think of the people around them. So hear this, please. You can have interests and drive and imagination and and a will and strength and gifts and so forth. God has made each of us in his own image, and as such, we are just little creators going about the work of, of bringing about the gospel to bear in the world around us through the work of restoration and kingdom expansion. So, that being said, that being, you know, let's put that aside now and move on. He's calling them to say, in light of that, in light of what you have in the gospel, in light of these special gifts what is, you know, that you've been given, what does it look like to be humble? And this will be my answer. You have to do it on purpose. It's something you have to choose into. If you truly believe the gospel that you've been humbled before God, to do this for others around you is a, is a choice. We have to do this on purpose. And I'll say this. If you're taking notes, write this down. Humility is an act of faith. Humility is an act of faith. It has nothing to do with what you think about the other person. And everything to do with what you think about God. Humility has nothing to do with what you think of the other person and has everything to do with what you think of God. And you're standing in his love. It's something that we choose into based on faith, on the spirit, and willpower in light of the gospel and the grace of the gospel that we've been given. So look what Paul says in 2.2. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. So what are they to be like-minded about? Their purpose and love, like we talked about last week, the purpose of gospel advancement. Church, Paul has one aim, to know Jesus and to make him known. To know Jesus and to make him known, to love and expand the kingdom. And he's saying to the Philippian church and to us today, know Christ and make him known. If we are focused on the big goal of simply Jesus, which is our identity statement here at Hope, if we're focused on that, many of the little things that we get caught up into start to fade away. They become second tier, third tier, fourth tier things that don't really matter anymore in light of the advancement of the gospel and simply Jesus. So petty arguments that have derailed many churches over the centuries are put aside. So the important work of advancing the gospel can go forth, of being an ambassador for the king and seeing that as our calling. So do you see it? That starts to take center stage. So it's, the, it's looking to God and simply Jesus and saying, that's what's most important. 
That is what's most important. It starts to take our eyes off of our own situation and put it on him. So we live purposely into that. That's a choice that we make in our lives to say the gospel's more important than the situation that I find myself in right now. The second way they live on purpose is by considering others better than themselves. This is, again, this is a choice. This is an act of faith on our part. So think about that word with me for a second. Consider. Consider others better than yourselves, Paul says. Think about, think about this. Consider means to process, to, to think about, to mull over, to contemplate. So Paul is calling the Philippian church, and I would say Hope Alliance, to think about how God has made others, how he has wired them, how he has gifted them, how he's designed them, with their stories, with experiences, wisdom, quirky, oddball things that we all have, with fears and talents and so forth, all for the sake of his glory. And Paul's saying, consider these things. Think about these things. And think about why God has maybe wired them in that way. Why has God designed them in that way? Ultimately, we would say it's for his glory that he has designed us the way that he has and wired us the way that he has for the advancement of the gospel and for God's glory. Not theirs, not ours, his glory. And Paul is saying, consider that maybe, just maybe, they've got something to offer that you don't. That they're bringing something to the table that you don't. In this moment, God wants to advance his glory on earth through them and through their need or their desire or their idea. But to do this, to consider someone better than you, better than me, we look at others and look to their interests rather than our own, takes a whole lot of gospel faith. It takes a whole lot of faith to do that. Humility is an act of faith. Church, we've talked about this a lot over the last year here at Hope, that, that in God, we have three things. We find purpose and significance. We find provision that God provides for us. And we find security, that he has our best interest in mind and he will care for us. And we see that in the Garden of Eden, that was broken. When Adam and Eve said, you know, we will provide for ourselves. Thank you. We've, we need our own significance, not from you, God. And it was broken. And God, ever since then, has been on a quest to try to bring people back into that through the covenant with Abraham, through the covenant with Israel, through the kingdom and David, he's saying, I will give you purpose and provision and security. And then ultimately we see it come to earth in Jesus, where if we come to know him and understand the gospel, we find purpose and provision and security. So now, purpose, provision, security, we find this in God. Now think about this concept of humility. Think of others as more important or significant than you. Think of their interests instead of your own, meaning you might lose something. Or you might not gain something when you're considering someone else is more important. Do you hear it? To be humble means not fighting for your own significance or vanity. To be humble means not hoarding or protecting our own stuff, but instead allowing others to have access to it. But if you don't have faith in who God says he is, 
If you don't really believe that he wants to provide for you, if you don't really believe that he wants to protect you, if you don't really believe that you are safe in him or that he wants to give you purpose and significance, you're never going to do that. Do you see how it's an act of faith? What you believe about God starts to dictate how you will act towards others. So when we believe that our safety and our security and our provision and our purpose are safe in God's love for us, we can then turn and do that for others. That's why humility is an act of faith. Now, I need to say this. For too long, Christians have thought that humility is to completely be devoid of self, to, let, to just be a doormat and let people run over us. I don't think that's the case here. He's saying, consider Right? Think about. Think about what other people might be bringing to this situation. Because in the same way, you're also going to be bringing things to a situation, right? So it doesn't just mean that you always roll over and have to be a doormat in a situation. Do you understand? I, I mean, like in no way are we standing here saying, well, like if you're in a, you know abusive relationship, you just got to be humble. Like, no, that's not, that's not what's happening here. Okay? If you're the leader in a group or in a business, there are times that God has called you and put you there to be the leader. It doesn't mean that you roll over and just do what everyone else is suggesting. There are times when God calls us to stand aground and make a decision. But I would say what he is calling us to, this next level of humility, is to pause long enough to say, okay, let me think about what's going on here. Let me think about the situation. Let me hear what you're bringing to the table. Let me contemplate this. Let me consider this. And so it doesn't always mean when we're humble to be a doormat. But it does mean considering what God might be doing in a situation. I know many of you, you know the story of Abraham. right? Abraham in the Old Testament, God calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to do something through you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a people. And Abraham says, look, we're old my wife and I, we're, we're barren. We can't have kids. This is not going to happen, God. This plan is not going to come to fruition. And he says, no, no, no. I want to do this through you. And he says, I will provide for you. And he ends up giving Abraham and Sarah this son, Isaac, who is the fulfillment of this promise to them. And then he's going to be the fulfillment of this nation that starts to expand and ultimately leads to Jesus. And in Isaac, what Abraham has is God's promise coming true, and he finds his significance in him, and his purpose of being a great nation starts to come to light. He's provided for. Isaac will care for him and take care of him someday in the future. God is proving himself to, make, to, to show Abraham that he's safe in his plan. And remember, what does God ask Abraham to do with Isaac? He asks him to sacrifice him. And I can't get into the mystery of this story right now and some of the insanity of it. But what I want to highlight is that Abraham is willing to do it. He is willing to sacrifice Isaac, his son, the provision of God, the security of God, the significant purpose that God was giving Abraham. And if you have, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read something from Hebrews. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Purpose, significance, provision. Abraham, listen to this, 
Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Do you see what the author of Hebrews is saying? It doesn't say it in the Genesis account that Abraham thought this. It says it here in Hebrews, that Abraham believed that God could bring something back from the dead. And he was willing to sacrifice in that moment because he believed, ultimately, somehow that God is a God of resurrection and would bring Isaac back from the dead somehow. So how does this tie in? I believe that Abraham was acting in faith, believing that he served a God of great power who could bring something back from the dead. So when we act in humility towards someone else and we're willing to let something die, we're willing to give up our wants, our needs, our desires. What we're believing on faith is that God can somehow resurrect it in some other way. That God can do something that we didn't expect. That though we were willing to give up this part of our pride, that God will somehow restore our purpose in another way. Do you see it? Abraham understood this. He believed that even though something died, resurrection would happen. And what we do when we believe on faith that we can love someone and be humble towards them is believing that God will resurrect us in some other way that he will care for us in some other way, that there's a bigger purpose in mind than just our own pride. So think about what this looks like in your life, particularly in your area of of church and church family here, because that's what Paul was talking about. When your husband or wife is asking you to simply communicate a little bit more, you sacrifice your stonewalling self-protection And believe that you'll be okay if you share more. When your son or daughter is expressing their thoughts about an issue and a concern they have, you listen and consider them in the problem solving. When your mother or father is asking you to come to Thanksgiving, and you really don't want to, my mom's here, that has nothing to do with you. I'm just, I'm realizing I wrote that. (laughs) I was thinking of other situations, I know. I love you, mom. When your mother or father is asking you to come to a holiday that you don't want to, you think of them as more important and believe that God will resurrect that holiday from the dead, right? Right? I mean, this is, this is what it looks like to live in humility, to live believing that God can bring something, give something back that was dead or being killed. When your community group wants to go in a different direction, you know, maybe they want to study Tim Keller and you want to study Matt Chandler, you give it up and trust That God can do something through that. You see how humility is an act of faith. It's believing that God will continue to provide for you, to give you provision, to give you significance, to keep you safe. And pushing things out further, finally, here into the realm of gospel advancement beyond the church. Think about this would look like if we didn't just live this way towards the family of God, but we lived this way towards the world around us. In our schools in our workplaces, in our neighborhood. Imagine what the world would become if we believed that God was in the resurrection business, that he would bring things back from the dead, that we could lose and yet still win ultimately through Jesus. That we are brought into the gospel to then be agents of of creation with God to help bring about restoration, not just reforming our neighbors all the time, What if we believed that? We gave something up to serve our neighbor in humility. God would resurrect in our lives something else in the future. Do you see it? The humility is an act 
of faith in our Father in heaven who loves to give good, surprising, resurrecting, miraculous gifts to his children near and far. So if we look back now to the story of Abraham, we see that Abraham was willing to give something up, believing that God could still resurrect it. Adam and I were talking this week, and, and we talked about how it's also incredible that if you look at Isaac, Isaac was not just a little boy. He was a grown teenager, strong enough to overpower his old man father. And yet, he willingly climbs onto the altar, trusting his father, believing that something else is going to come from this. So now look with me at 2 verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see it? That Jesus is our example and he was willing to lay down his greatness, his glory, to enter into this mess with us on our behalf and willingly lay himself on the altar. And say, I'll take what you deserve. But Paul takes that and says, okay, now go and live likewise. Go and be willing to lay down on the altar. Go and be willing to sacrifice for your church family, for your family, for your friends, for your neighborhood. And what we enter into here, church, this is a mystery. And Paul talks about it in several different places, and we could spend hours talking about it. I'm not going to. Don't worry. But he links our humility with joining in Christ's suffering. And somehow when we do that, we we get to experience something that only the humble get to experience. This, This relationship with God and his provision and his care for us in the midst of suffering that many people opt out of. And I don't wish suffering on anyone, but Paul is calling for it here saying, you willingly walk into this. Because you've been called not just to believe, but also to suffer, he says earlier. So we enter into this willingly, believing that God is in the resurrection business. That he loves us and can provide significance and security for us, even in the midst of suffering. And we are joined to him in in a mysterious way, in which we start to grasp something of the divine that I don't think, without humility, we can experience. I'll wrap with this. Adam read the passage earlier where, Peter says to Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And it's this high, victorious moment. And then Jesus says, yes, I am. And I'm going to go and die. And Peter says, no, I will never allow that. And Jesus has this strange reaction to most of our eyes. He says, get behind me, Satan. You have the things of men in mind, not the things of God. Do you see it? That Jesus is Messiah. He is the living one for all time. And he says, yet, I'm called to death. And then he goes beyond that and says, not just me, you too. Be prepared to take up your crosses and follow me. 
And I think, again, it's this call to enter into humility, to enter into suffering with Jesus and somehow be you know, married to him in such a way that we start to understand this and grasp this and find something in God that we couldn't find otherwise. Church, humility is an act of faith. It's an act of faith to live in, hum- in humility and to live worthy of the gospel that we've been given. To stand united in purpose and in one mind of making Jesus known. And it helped this church in Philippi, and Paul was encouraging them, and it encourages us today that we can choose into this humility because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done for us. Would you pray with me?